It's time for Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, you know, happy not to be in the uh, courthouse on the uh, uh, the great shakeout day. It always makes me a little nervous being in the 1962 downtown courthouse uh, where they, uh, underneath the council table, they've uh, stapled tiny plastic bags with a mask and whistle. Uh, somehow, I'm, I'm not sure that's going to protect me if the, uh, <laughs> the concrete building decides to come down on all of us in the middle of a court case. But, you know, there they are dangling underneath the table. You know, that's a good question, actually, the seismic uh, uh, fortitude of the courthouse building, because it was actually built once upon a time to survive a nuclear blast on the Americans south of us, 50, 60 miles away from ground zero. So I'm not actually sure how strong it is. That's exactly right. There was a plan in place at one point to have all of the uh, MLAs uh, evacuated to the parking garage of the courthouse. And if you go in there, there's sort of uh, concrete columns every uh, few feet. Uh, whether or not the uh, design intended to uh, stop nuclear fallout is conducive to standing up in the event of an earthquake, I'm not sure. But the the little uh, plastic pouches stapled under the tables don't, uh, I'm afraid to say, add a lot of confidence. No, no, I'm afraid they don't. No. Uh, let's let's dive into the docket for today. As uh, luck would have it, we actually had a, a caller yesterday talking about the matter of self-defense and what a person is and is not allowed to do when taking reasonable steps to protect uh, themselves from imminent harm at the hands of someone else. The Supreme Court of Canada recently touched on self-defense and the accused person's role in the incident, did they not? Indeed, they did. Uh, for an accused person with a unfortunate name for a murder trial, the accused name was Kill, spelled K-H-I-L-L. <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but I can see everybody <laughs> looking at that thinking, somebody's having fun and somebody's changed this. What's the real name? Somebody tell me. <laughs> so the, the fact pattern of the Kill case involved Mr. Kill being asleep in his home. Yeah. His uh, partner woke him up because there was a noise outside. He looked out and saw the light on in his pickup truck. Um, he, uh, in his underwear and uh, a shirt, he also picked up uh, his shotgun before going out to the uh, truck to see what was, uh, what was up. Uh, and uh, when he got close to the truck, he saw somebody was inside it in the passenger side, uh, and he yelled at them something to the effect of, get your hands up or something along those lines. Yes. Uh, and the uh, person uh, made a, a sudden movement. Uh, and Mr. Kill thought that he had his uh, hands up uh, pointing a, a gun at him. Mm. Uh, Mr. Kill, who had some military training, unloaded with his shotgun. Uh, and given that it was a murder charge, you can deduce what uh, the result of that was. Indeed. When uh, Mr. Kill searched the man, he didn't have a gun on him. He did have a knife in his pocket. It looked like he was there to you know, steal the truck or something out of it. Mm. So he had a trial. Uh, and... We in, in Canada, we redid our self-defense provisions a few years ago, mm -hmm. and it was designed to try to simplify them. <laughs> uh, previously, we had various different kinds of self-defense that would apply to different circumstances, like using deadly force or using less than deadly force. And so there was an effort to try and wrap those all into one self-defense provision, which is now found at Section 34 of the Criminal Code. Uh, and... What's happened now in this single uh, self-defense provision um, is that to avail yourself of that, you need to establish uh, that you believed on reasonable grounds that force was going to be used against you. So uh, tick for Mr. Kill, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Uh, then, the, then the 
purpose of the force you're using has to be to defend or protect yourself, right? You can't use force to get even or get back at somebody or teach them a lesson or something of that sort. So you have to be using the force for the purpose of defending yourself. And then the third component of it is that the act that you must be reasonable in the circumstances. Hmm. And there's where it becomes a little more complicated, okay? Because the criminal code then sets out a non-exhaustive list of factors that can be considered when determining whether uh, what you did was reasonable. It's all kinds of things like the nature of the force or threat, uh, uh, whether the party used or threatened to use a weapon, uh, age, size, gender, physical capabilities, uh, history of interactions, all these things, and it's non-exhaustive. So so there can be more. one One of the challenges here is when you have so many factors to consider, it can turn it into a bit of a length of the foot of the judge or the jurors, right? Mm. Um, and in any case, for Mr. Kill, the jury hearing his case, he testified, he explained why he did what he did. Were they allowed he to was, hear his name or would that prejudice? Yeah, that's right. Like, really? Well, it worked. It, he overcame it. He was okay. acquitted. Oh, the, wow. The jury, okay. found, the jury found him not guilty. They concluded that, uh, right, he would have uh, uh, believed the force had been used against him, thought the man was pointing a gun at him. I believed him when he said he was uh, going to uh, be defending himself. That was the purpose of it. I believed him, or at least that raised a reasonable doubt. And they concluded uh, that it was reasonable. Hmm. Um, But the judge in this case did not explain one of this long list of considerations to the jury. And that one is one listed as C, the person's role in the incident. Hmm. It's not that the judge made some mistaken explanation for that. The judge just didn't touch on that along the long list of things. They didn't explain what does it mean, the person's role in the incident. Yeah. And the Crown appealed the acquittal uh, to the Court of Appeal and then all the way to the Supreme it went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. Wow. And the Supreme Court of the Court of Appeal in Ontario and now the Supreme Court of Canada found that the judge made a mistake because the judge didn't explain to the jury the meaning of, quote, the person's role in the incident. And the majority of the Supreme Court of Canada found that the person's role in the incident, uh, it means more than simply the last interaction, like when the man yelled at the person breaking into his truck and thought that he was bringing up his hands, pointing a gun at him. The judge, the the Supreme Court of Canada said no, the person's role in the incident includes more than that and would include, for example, the decision to go out with the shotgun to begin with. Interesting. Rather than staying inside and phoning the police, for example. Yes. And so because the judge didn't explain that, uh, they've ordered a new trial. Hmm. And so despite the fact that Mr. Kill was acquitted by a jury, um, he will now have a new trial at which the judge will need to explain to the jury uh, that they must consider in determining whether what Mr. Kill did was reasonable in the circumstances, uh, the, his role in the incident, including his decision to go and confront the apparent intruder into his truck uh, while carrying a shotgun. And so that will be explained to the jury, and then it will be up to the jury and presumably explanation for all of this other long list of various things they must consider. And then it would be for the jury to make a determination. Um, another thing to remember about self-defense, and this is important just conceptually, yes. is that the person who's charged with an offense, like Mr. Kill, 
he doesn't have the burden of showing that self-defense applies. Like he doesn't have to prove he acted in self-defense, even though sometimes that's how people might speak about it. Hmm. The, the proper way to articulate it would be the Crown needs to prove that Mr. Kill was not acting in self-defense. Interesting. And that's an important distinction, and it's part of the fact that we're all presumed to be innocent, right? Yes, you don't yes. presume that you're guilty and then have to show that you were defending yourself. In order to get a conviction, a jury would be told and a judge would tell themselves, look, the Crown has to prove beyond all reasonable doubt that self-defense does not apply. And so they would. that's how each of those elements would be analyzed, right? Whether the person had a belief on reasonable grounds that force was being used or uh, whether they were using force for the purpose of defending or protecting themselves. And finally, whether that what they did was reasonable in the circumstances. All of that has to be analyzed from the perspective of, has the Crown proven that that does not fit? Uh, and if the Crown doesn't prove that it doesn't apply, the person's entitled to be acquitted. Uh, but uh, here, Mr. Kill's going to have to go through this one more time. Uh, and uh, again, a jury is going to need to assess the reasonableness uh, of the uh, his actions, including all of Mr. Kill's uh, role in the incident, including his initial decision uh, to go and confront the person breaking into his pickup truck while carrying a loaded shotgun. Interesting. So I can see that because if you're in a position where, I don't know, the universe just sort of plops you down with no memory and you're holding a shotgun and there's a person stealing your truck who you believe has a gun, they turn towards you. Yeah, a reasonable person thinks that they're in imminent danger, but you have to go further back beyond that. The decision to get the gun in the first place, the decision to go out and be in view of the person who may mean to do you harm instead of sheltering indoors because all you could lose is the truck in that case and calling the police. Okay, I see it. Interesting. Right. The, the problem with this long list of things and using this concept of reasonable in the circumstances is that it makes it pretty hard for somebody to judge, what am I lawfully entitled to do? Yeah. Um, right now, maybe we're just all kidding ourselves, thinking that the uh, person is, you know, people in their daily life are wandering around thinking about Section 34 of the Criminal Code and factors A to H when they're confronting a burglar or something. No. But... The law really should be understandable <laughs> to people. That's right? We have it. Yeah. People, people need to be able to gauge how they're permitted to act. And, and it shouldn't be that even if you asked somebody who was a lawyer who spends their career dealing with these kinds of things, it shouldn't be the case that the lawyer be left scratching their head saying, well, I don't know. I guess we'll have to just see what the jury thinks about all this. Um, one of the benefits of the preceding self-defense, the self-defense provisions we used to have, although they had their own problems, they were complicated, and you had to know the law to figure out how they would apply, yeah. they were a little more precise than simply saying, right, was the act in self-defense reasonable in the circumstances, taking into account a laundry list of various things you might think about. That makes it pretty hard for somebody to try to determine you know, well, what am I allowed to do? You know, a person is in my bedroom. Can I use force against them? Yeah. Uh, the person in my truck, the person doing this or that. And so I think the law does, should uh, be clearer and provide some more guidance to people so that we can know what is expected of us uh, in sometimes very difficult circumstances. Are, are you required to just remain inside if somebody steals your truck? 
uh, you know, are you putting yourself in jeopardy if you go out and get in a, a physical confrontation with them over the truck theft? I guess the realistic answer to that is, yeah. Uh, because somebody at the end of the day, judge or jury, is going to be, if something happens there, maybe assessing whether what you did was reasonable. Um, and different people are going to quite reasonably have a different view of what that amounts to. And so um, hopefully over time, there's more authority to clear this up for people. Uh, but uh, there at the moment, I think, is a, a fair scope for a head scratching in terms of just what exactly somebody's permitted to do. Uh, in a variety, you know, in the endless uh, permutations of human affairs. So we'll have to wait and see what happens for Mr. Kill on his second jury trial. (laughs) All right, let's take a quick break. Uh, Michael Mulligan will continue with Legally Speaking here on CFAX 1070 in just a moment. All right, moving on from criminal law to civil law. Uh, The concept of uh, duties I find fascinating, Michael Mulligan, because in the law we have all sorts of rules of certain actions and certain behaviors that we're simply not permitted to do. You're not supposed to lie in a financial transaction. You're not supposed to commit assault, things of that nature. There's also the concept of duties, where we have an obligation in certain circumstances to take steps and to take action in some matters. And if we fail to do that, that can also also be a tort or an offense like for example if i fail to take appropriate steps to disclose that a house that i'm selling to some nice folks has a bat colony in it indeed bats they could be a problem (laughs) (laughs) is that what this says a bat colony what's the story here well this was a six-day trial over the issue of bats in a house and so the, uh, the judgment begins with the claimants had no issue with the bats who lived peacefully outside in their bat houses, but oh. recoiled from sharing their inside space with the flying mammals. And so this case involved a house that was sold. And as part of selling the house, there's a thing which is pretty common in a real estate transaction. It's a property disclosure statement. Mm-hmm. And it's got a whole bunch of things listed on it. Uh, and real estate agents will often ask somebody selling a house to fill one of these things out certifying a whole bunch of things about the property that's being sold. Uh, And people should think carefully about uh, answering uh, all of those uh, things, because um, if it turns out at the end of the day, one of them turns out to be inaccurate, you can have things like a six-day trial over the bats found in the ceiling of your house that you sold. So there were bat houses Um, outside, but it was the bats inside that were at issue? That's right. Apparently the bat's outside, and, and I must say the uh, the judge was great. I think he must be a fan of bats. He referred repeatedly to a uh, a book that uh, one of the uh, claimants purchased called Got Bats? Question uh, mark. A helpful handbook. Um, uh, and uh, he referred to the fact that uh, it became apparent uh, why uh, there were bat houses outside the property uh, when in the uh, spring it became evident that the property was teeming with mosquitoes. And so ah. the, the bat houses outside were serving a very useful purpose, and the bats were very useful because they have a voracious appetite for insects that are flying around. Interesting. And so the issue here, what turned on ultimately Um, whether the person selling the house was negligent in failing to take reasonable care uh, to ensure there weren't bats inside the residence. It wasn't alleged that he was uh, acted fraudulently. Like it wasn't alleged that he intentionally didn't tell the seller, the purchasers about the bats. Um, It was alleged that he was careless and had a duty to do more to detect, uh, detect the bats and tell the purchasers about the bats. Interesting. Um, Interestingly here, in addition to the judge finding that the person selling it hadn't been, even though he owed a duty of care, careless, 
Um, he also interestingly found, and this is good judicial authority, that even if the seller was aware of a bat colony roosting in the ceiling, which the judge did not find, the judge concluded that he did not uh, answer the uh, question untruthfully, uh, as listed on the PDS, that disclosure statement, uh, because the question asks about rodents. And the judge concluded that unlike rodents, bats do not have teeth that allow them to gnaw through building material. Um, And so bats aren't rodents. And so the particular question, the way it was phrased, the judge concluded uh, doesn't uh, attach to it, uh, isn't uh, specific to or doesn't require a declaration about bats. Um, However, uh, the judge did find that uh, if the person was aware of them, it would constitute what we described as a latent defect in the property, and there may be some obligation to um, disclose that. At the end of the day here, uh, I must say this is a uh, decision very favorable to bats. Um, the uh, judge found that the uh, seller of the home had uh, not uh, breached his uh, duty of care uh, to the purchasers, uh, that he didn't have a, a basis to do more to try to uh, ascertain whether there were bats up inside the attic, essentially. I um, mean, even though there had been some signs of guano <laughs> a few years earlier, uh, the judge concluded that wouldn't be sufficient uh, to alert a reasonable person that they needed to uh, inquire into whether there was a uh, bat colony roosting up in the uh, attic of the house, which wouldn't have been apparent to somebody living in the home. Uh, and so good news for the bats, bad news for the mosquitoes. Uh, and despite a six-day effort at trial, uh, there's not going to be any uh, compensation paid to the uh, home purchasers, and they're just going to have to learn to live with the bats. I just realized right now, I had the epiphany, that the dent in rodent is the same as dent is in dental as in teeth, and that rodent is just Latin for one who gnaws. I didn't realize that. <laughs> so the bats are free and clear. Because they don't gnaw. That makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, there we Fuck go. Man. That's how I learned that. There we go. Yep, all my years on this earth, I didn't realize that that's what the word rodent actually means, which makes perfect sense. Because I thought bats were flying rodents, but they don't have the continuously growing incisors, so they're not the same sort of concern with respect to chewing through the wood of a house or to chew holes through things, so the law would treat them differently. Yeah, the law treats them differently, and they're not captured expressly by the property disclosure statement. And so there we are. In addition to uh, the etymology of the word, you've now got some good uh, judicial authority for the uh, proposition that bats are rodents. All right. <laughs> We've got uh, three and a half minutes left, a six-month sentence for a waived drug trafficking charge upheld on appeal. Yeah, a couple of things out of this case I think are worth knowing about. This was a B.C. Court of Appeal decision. It was a case involving a person who waived a charge of trafficking in a small amount of methamphetamine from Calgary to Victoria and pled guilty here to it and was sentenced to six months in jail plus 12 months of probation. Now, a few things to break out of that uh, sentence. First of all, that concept of waiving a charge somewhere else. Hmm. People should be aware that you don't have, if you're charged with a criminal offense and you're having a trial, you can't just pick where your trial is going to be. Because if they allowed that, you'd have to ship witnesses all over the country to convenience the person who decided to, you know, move from Victoria to Prince George. We don't move all of the witnesses for your Victoria trial up to Prince George to make it convenient for you. However, if somebody is wanting to plead guilty to a criminal offense, they can apply for what's called a waiver, which would be asking the Crown prosecutor in the original jurisdiction, hey, would you be okay with me moving this uh, case to another place where I'm living, for example, 
so that I can plead guilty to it. Um, And often there's agreement to that, although it's not a right, you have to ask permission for it. And so this person uh, got permission to waive their charge from Calgary to Victoria, pled guilty, and they were sentenced as indicated. Um, They then uh, appealed the sentence, uh, arguing that um, the uh, their ex- their circumstances were exceptional, and it was a small amount of drugs, and argued that they should only receive a period ha- only should have received a period of probation. Um, and the court of appeal dealt with that um, in a way that I think is also worth people knowing about, uh, which is the idea that when you're appealing a sentence, it's not enough to try to persuade the court of appeal uh, that some different sentence would have been more appropriate. Right. You can't go to the Court of Appeal and say, look, all of you judges, you're up a bit higher. There are three of you. You know, what do you think about all this? It doesn't work that way. In order to succeed on a sentence appeal, you need to demonstrate uh, that the sentence was unfit. Mm -hmm. So they refer to it as if it's got to be demonstrably unfit, which means more than just I don't agree with it or maybe something else could have happened. Uh, And so uh, this case stands for that uh, proposition as well. And the Court of Appeal Uh, upheld the uh, six-month jail sentence despite the small amount of uh, drugs uh, involved uh, and the uh, sentencing. So I think those are two concepts people should know about, that idea of when you can waive or move a charge. uh, And if you're unhappy with the sentence imposed, bear in mind you don't get a do-over. You would have to show that there was some error of principle or the sentence was uh, demonstrably unfit. Uh, if you want to uh, succeed up in the uh, in the Court of Appeal. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking during the second half of our second hour every Thursday here on CFAX 1070. Michael, a pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Always great to be here. Keep your eye open for the little bags underneath the council table in the courthouse next time you're up there. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye now. Thanks. There we go. Yep. You know, you've got your little whistle, which I guess is uh, helpful if you're trying to signal help from someone who can presumably uh, extract uh, you from the rubble in which you find yourself.